welcome to Comic Book Decalogue, a podcast courtesy of the Comics Journal. My name is Greg, and on this show, we ask the same ten questions to a different cartoonist each time. Annie Mock is this month's guest. Annie's a cartoonist, critic, and, as you may already know, another TCJ contributor. And whether you're already a fan or you're a soon-to-be convert big news, Annie has just put three separate books on Gumroad, Shadow Manifesto, Worst Behavior, and Mirrors, of Egon Sheila. Literally hundreds of pages of comics, essays, and additional artwork, all of it available in a pay-what-you-want model. It sounds too good to be true, and it's a great time to get on board with Annie's work, which is skillful, insightful, and engrossing stuff. Before going further, you know, I had a whole bit written out for this episode in keeping with the dumb sorts of bits that tend to fill these intros, but at the moment, that whole approach feels uh, out of sync With the discourse in comics lately, this podcast has been a relatively light thing compared to a lot of stuff on TCJ, really by design. Uh, And for that matter, with my own background, my policy on outlets like Twitter has generally been a shut up and signal boost. It's easy to worry about where something like performative allyship begins, for instance, or even just what you might get wrong. But with the effects of harassment in comics in many forms being so visible lately with people speaking out about it in spite of the discomfort that comes with that, and with comics readers, makers, critics having all the evidence you could possibly need that this is a serious, ongoing problem, I wouldn't want even an outlet as small as this to be mistaken for an outlet that's at all neutral about these things. It's a shameful thing, and it's something that reflects on comics at large, as long as there aren't structures in place to address harassment in an effective way with conventions, especially, I think, we've reached a flashpoint. I don't want to group all forms of harassment together. Uh, I don't want to regard any of them as acceptable either. Uh, This podcast is a niche thing, and I would hope that there is no overlap between its listeners and the people who see artists or publishers, real leaders in comics, pushing for broader representation and take it upon themselves to attack them. The type of online trolls who begin with some misplaced sense of entitlement and turn that into hate speech. Or, for that matter, people in the comics community who are willing to exploit their positions or exploit situations and use those opportunities for unwelcome sexual language, unwelcome sexual contact. Again, these are all behaviors that you know exist, uh, and yet you want to think you're preaching to the choir when discussing with your peer group or with whatever modest listenership you might have. But that mindset is just a step away from treating harassment as only a small problem. Clearly it is not, if you needed any convincing, and it has no place in comics. So, um, no jokes this month. Some people are probably grateful for that. Uh, thank you for bearing with this. And thank you also to everyone speaking out lately. Uh, I, I don't want to offer a hot take here or crowd out anybody else just to say that we hear you and we appreciate it. And now, uh, ten questions with Annie Mock. Question number one. Our first question is, what's the last comic you finished reading? I finished reading, the last comic I finished was Mechatra by Yasmin Omar Atto because I interviewed them for the Comics Journal. It's about um, this kid, Isaac, and his trials and tribulations through college, dealing with epilepsy, and it also touches on like Middle Eastern, Palestinian identity, 
it's a really beautiful book. I think everybody should read it. It's coming out. Uh, I think it's out October 1st, which is when we're recording. Perfect. So um, get on that. When you know you have a, a piece of criticism on the horizon or an interview regarding a book, does that affect your reading of it at all, you know, voluntarily or involuntarily? Is your head in a different uh, sort of headspace as you go through the book? Well, yes, um, if the book sucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but if it's good, then I don't have a problem. But if, if it's terrible, then the fact that I have to review it is such a fucking sort of Dam- Damocles over my head. Because then I then you got to face the music if, if the reviews... Uh, I also write reviews for Publishers Weekly, and those are anonymous. But if it's mm-hmm. for Comics Journal, then you got to, you know, uh, deal with it. If the author gets mad or whatever, the publisher gets mad, who knows? The review's not up yet. This is a Tom Gold book that I'm talking about. But yeah, I, I reviewed Moon Cop last year, and I uh, came into it wanting to like it, but also had some trouble with that book. Yeah, Moon Cop, I don't know. I've had a lot of conversations with people about that book, and... For me, Moon Cop boils down to don't try to make me sympathize with the cop, uh-huh. even if he's a cop that's not technically doing anything. I just don't care. Um, <laughs> I would I would rather not, really. Um, although I, I enjoyed aspects of Moon Cop, for sure. And uh, let me ask you question number two now. What cartoonist doesn't get enough praise? There are a number. Um, most of them I'm working with. Uh, on pitches for stuff, but Carta Monier, mm-hmm. I think, does wonderful work, and uh, Hegu Rose, Hegu Samson Rose, um, Jade Johnson does really cool work. She mostly does illustrations. Kathy G. Johnson, Mario Delmo, Laura Netzker. That w- that wasn't one cartoonist. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. No, you uh, you sort of anticipated uh, a follow up question I had in my back pocket about that because you uh, mm-hmm. uh, more so than most cartoonists I can think of really uh, both are, are prolific with your own written and drawn your own cartooned pieces, but you mm-hmm. also collaborate on a regular basis. So I was curious, uh, sort of along the lines of of being in uh, different head spaces when you approach a review, how differently your creative brain works as far as as far as you're aware when you're you know scripting for a collaborator versus doing a piece that's uh holistically yours well scripting is just so much easier because writing is just so much easier than drawing i feel like that just comes down to the fact that we write all day every day Mm -hmm. on the internet and you know and we did it in school and no matter how much drawing you do not no matter how much drawing you do, certainly there are people who surpass like the amount of drawing more than the amount of writing they do, and that tends to make incredible work. But I think you're just, you're just writing more and you're talking more as a person in the world. So I think writing is easier for that reason. Have any collaborations, well, let's, let's focus on scripting, that you've scripted, say, revealed things about your own work back to you that were surprising? I'm, I'm wondering what... You know, what the major Hmm. revelations of your artistic collaborations have been. Sure. Early on, I did a collaboration with Emily Carroll for a Vertigo uh, short story anthology called The Witching Hour. Uh, And we did a story called This Witch's Work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Emily brought, of course, brought such just an incredible atmosphere to the story that I couldn't have conceived of at the time. I guess you would say my work is pretty atmospheric now, but at the time, I'm not sure it was. 
um, or was reaching that. So Emily, at the time, was able to draw a much more realistic anatomy than I was able to do back then, and just brought such like a, yeah, uh, like a, a horror to the horror parts and like a sweetness to the parts that were sweet. So um, yeah, just really brought out the the soul of the story, I thought. Um, and I tend to think that whenever I see drawings of of uh, the things I scripted. Is seeding uh, an amount of creative control ever a challenge for you? I mean, I know when you're working with an, an Emily Carroll or someone uh, like, like Carter, who's also wonderfully talented, you can, you can expect the best, but I have to imagine that there's still points at which, even if you're scripting a comic, you envision things a certain way. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to have to let go of that a lot with my project with Carta because that is uh, an autobiography. And I, I, of course, you know, I know exactly how the room looked at the time and all all that stuff. But um, I'm just going to have to let that a lot of that go and let Carta work at the heart of the story and the heart of the characters and not worry so much about those little details. But uh, yeah, and and that's a strange thing. but uh, yeah, there's so much joy to it, and it allows me to work on a lot of different projects, which I love doing, and it allows me to indulge in projects that maybe I don't have the drawing capacity for, or you know, things like that. Now, hearing that that piece uh, is autobio is interesting to me. Uh, that was I knew uh, the two of you had a collaboration in the works, but I didn't know uh, it was, uh, you know, of that, that nature genre, which is super interesting to me just because, you know, I'm not a cartoonist myself, but autobio comics are something I've thought a lot in writing criticism just because of, I find the kind of implicit fictionalizing of, of a person's experience when, you know, transmuted into comics, very interesting. That liminal space between truth and fiction that I think autobio comics inhabit know almost almost completely mm-hmm. which sorry there's not a question in there apparently <laughs> i thought i thought there was gonna be a question mark <laughs> at the end of that uh and evidently there's not so i will <laughs> i'll ask you a third question which is sure what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with well that's an interesting question because um you know as there's like of cartoonists as there's rising critique of a lot of cartoonists uh, you know, from feminists and POC and queer and trans people, uh, I feel like who's regarded highly depends very much on certain circles. But uh, I would say our crumb for so many reasons. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, like in that, t- apparently in that TCJ interview, he like openly admitted to being like a sexual predator, basically, and like just so racist and sexist. And uh, I wish nothing but the worst for him. Um, also, Johnny Ryan, also Ben Mara, just people I have a lot of problems with. Yeah. In the worst behavior collection, in one of the pieces, you refer to what Jane Smiley calls the, you know, the literary persona slash the public mm-hmm. persona and, and talk about yourself as, you know, the Annie Mock on Twitter as part of the literary persona, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, the the interior persona or the private persona, I suppose, uh, you know, which is interesting to me because I think Twitter also is sort of one of the liminal spaces in that respect you know you can Mm, you can mm -hmm. cultivate a persona through a tweet 
But more often than not, you know, a tweet is not going to have the polish or the, the you know, the, the level of the development, of course, that an artistic work would have, which is to say that, you know, you've critiqued, uh, you know, artists like Ryan, like Mara on Twitter as well. So I'm wondering uh, how different for you that approach to criticism is versus, you know, writing an essay proper, you know, when you, you're approaching a more formalized kind of criticism, are you are you usually trying to highlight work you know, that you think has a lot to recommend it? Uh, well, um, I think a tweet is just as valid as any essay. Uh, and I think I would rather write essays about artists that I admire because I think yeah, Maxine Walters said the thing, um, kept saying this thing during this like Congress hearing where she was trying to get information out of this squirrely white guy. And she kept saying, reclaiming my time, mm-hmm. reclaiming my time. And my uh, friend and roommate, TJ Delish, did a remix or did like a song using that. Oh, yeah. And so that's how I kind of think of Twitter criticism is it, it's just like, that's all I need to say on the subject, you know, three sentences. And it's, it's going to reach theoretically more people than an essay. Yeah. Possibly. It depends, obviously. Uh, very much on what the essay is or what platform it's on or who it reaches, but I know it's reaching, you know, such and such many people. Well, let me ask you another question about uh, that public-private persona and being known. You mentioned on on Twitter, I think, about uh, the weirdness of being at a comics festival, say, and having people who've uh, read your work and know you, I guess knowing is a loaded verb, but know you... uh, strictly through that work, but because so much of the work mm-hmm. is autobiographical, you know, might feel that they know you very intimately. Acknowledging that weirdness, do you feel like that's still a net positive thing? Or is it still a source of, huh. of strangeness for I, you? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember saying that, but I believe you. <laughs> uh, I say a lot of things that I don't remember. <laughs> so... Um, Overall, it's a it's a really positive thing. Um, I think most of my fans are pretty great, fans and readers or whatever you want to call them. And yeah, I, they have good boundaries. The fact that I've revealed very private things about myself. I mean, we'll we'll see what the um, Cardo Monier book comes out because that book is going to be very sexy and dirty. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens then. Cool. <laughs> but. Uh, I very much expect that book to be banned roundly as long as it gets a wide enough distribution. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, me too. Now, question four. You can send one comic back in time to yourself at 14. What is that comic? Hmm. Let's see. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I think I had access to Linda Barry probably not that much long after 14, but um, maybe Linda Barry's what it is, her book about writing and psychology and the psychology of play. That's a really beautiful book and I think would have been really helpful to me at the time. My um, writing was pretty confident at the time, but my drawing I think was pretty stiff. And the playfulness and the lucidity of that Linda Barry book, I think, would have been really helpful. That mention of your drawing is interesting to me uh, because 
you know, you have a, an art school background as well, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I think shows in a book like the Shadow Manifesto collection in a good way. You know, I'm not thinking of anyone specific, but you can you can imagine the art school grad uh, cartoonist uh, whose, whose work might be, uh, you know, kind of handcuffed by a certain manneredness or whatever. But but I think in your mm-hmm. case, there's, you know, a, a real talent for something like figure drawing, say, that just complements the larger pieces. So I'm wondering what your relationship is to that formal education now, how you think back on experience like that i loved art school uh i was very privileged my parents paid for some and then i got scholarships for the rest and so i'm i mean i'm paying loans but they're not the worst yeah i came into art school with probably some of the lowest technical skills in my class Mm -hmm. uh because i was so focused on writing at the time and it took me a long time be- to become more confident with my drawing. I would say it, it took the Frank Santoro um, comic correspondence class that I took back in maybe 2012 to loosen up a lot. And because the comic teachers that I had, they were good teachers, but I think they were hidebound by materials. They taught a very strict kind of classic brush inking or nib inking style. And I got a lot more out of my design classes, my photography classes, my fine arts classes, um, particularly my classes with Kinji Akagawa, which I've written about a little bit, um, maybe in Worst Behavior. Uh, That was an interdisciplinary arts class. But yeah, art school was very good for me, but I also, there were things to break out of, for sure. Now, let me ask you uh, one question that I'm curious about uh, with with all that in mind. Uh, When you say you were more confident about your writing compared to your drawing going into art school, what was it that made you say art school is the thing as opposed to a liberal arts experience or some other experience where, you know, writing might have been in the foreground Well, I knew I wanted to make comics. I was always drawn to visual media when I was in high school. I had written film scripts, and then when I got older, I acted and uh, have since acted in a feature film. And I'm working on another movie that I might do with my roommate if uh, we get funding. That depends on this grant that I'm waiting on. So visual narratives were always my favorite, and... Film kind of scared me at the time. I really wasn't ready to like work with other people. And comics I had always loved. Uh, I discovered graphic novels um, at the library, like uh, the Hernandez Brothers and Love and Rockets and stuff when I was a teen, Chris Ware and stuff like that. So I really fell in love with that like 2000s wave of comics. And I figured my drawing could get me by like skirt me by in comics and that was kind of the case Mm -hmm. all right and a question about the santoro correspondence experience also you know i'm familiar Mm -hmm. with some of the the teachings there broad view you know grid theory the emphasis on the uses of color for things like mood and atmosphere but you know not being a cartoonist of course i've not taken it myself for you what were the biggest takeaways that furthered your development as a visual artist most of all, working in layers. I, I can't say too much because Frank is very protective of his methods. Sure. fair enough. 
but um, working in layers, which I had started to do right after college. Right after college, I kind of thought that my next thing would be like grid paper and layers and either lightboxing or working on tracing paper or something like that. And um, Frank's method involved kind of blocking out light and shadow and then working on another layer on top of that, the lines, instead of, as he said, you know, doing a kind of coloring book style where you're penciling and then you're inking and then you're coloring inside those lines. Now, I am now traditionally penciling and then inking with a brush pen, but I'm still working in layers and I'm still working pretty loosely, which is another big thing I got from that class. Cool. And uh, question number six, uh, you've, you've alluded already to cartoonists whose work you'd like to see have a I don't know, diminished place in the, in the comics ecosystem. But what's the change you'd like to see mm-hmm. across the comics industry? Money. <laughs> I would like everybody who's working and working, you know, on comics to get paid. Uh, I would like new systems to be in place. For people like Koyama and TD Cloud to be in just, you know, just every comic shop and every bookstore. So uh, I guess bigger distribution to a wider amount of people and cartoonists getting paid. That's uh, interesting. You know, I, I, I agree completely, but interesting because uh, one of the reasons we're talking is because you've just dropped a bunch of books on Gumroad in a pay-as-you-go sort of model. So with, mm-hmm. with a move like that, uh, is it with a mind to just reaching as many people as possible? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so the comics up on Gumroad, gumroad.com slash heyanimok are uh, up for free slash pay what you can. And yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I have like a little, little tiny beady fake once referred to his money as being like a tiny little dirt pile, and I liked that. <laughs> so I have like a tiny little dirt pile of money right now, but but I'm broke a lot, and I've been broke a lot, so I uh, wouldn't want to restrict my work behind a paywall because then I knew that people in my situation couldn't mm-hmm. read it. And also I'm trying to just drum up interest in these books so that people will say to publishers, like, hey, when, when can we get this Annie Mock book in print? So, you know that uh, hopefully somebody will pick these books up. I'm already talking to... I've just emailed a bunch of publishers and a bunch of agents because my book from Oni got dropped and then my agent dropped me, so it was just like, well, fuck it. I might as well put all these books up for free. Have you started to see a response already in terms of the fruits of that Gumroad move? Yeah, yeah, I made like 200 bucks, which was awesome. And people are enjoying the work, I think. I don't know if I've heard really responses yet too much, um, but I know people are looking at it because I can see how many people are downloading it. Cool. And our, our sixth question, question number six is, and I'm, I'm ambivalent about this question sometimes because I think most of the people sure. I talk to are, you know, cartoonists through and through. Uh, but the question is, what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? You know, I don't think I've come close to quitting comics and if I was, it wouldn't really matter because I have so many other outlets. I make music, I, you know, I act, I do these different things. So even if I was, even if I quit comics for a period, it would just be to do other creative stuff. I wouldn't go like work on a farm or something. 
So, because uh, I'm incredibly lazy. <laughs> so, uh, farm work would be a no-go for me. Yeah, I mean, I might have quit drawing at times. I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah, if you could envision, for whatever reason, a, a version of your comics making in the future where you're you're primarily a scripter. No, because I enjoy drawing too much. I like a balance. I don't know what exactly that balance is, but I like to be jumping back and forth between different ways of making things and different kinds of media and different kinds of projects. So I don't think I could ever quit drawing. My drawing is definitely scaled back, but yeah, I would never quit. Now we've ping-ponged sort of all over the list already and just in the course of this conversation. So I'll, I'll ask question number seven with the caveat that uh, with respect to the, the secret teachings of Frank Santoro, we'll exclude the Santoro school from from this one. But uh, okay. question number seven <laughs> is, uh, what's the best advice you've heard about making comics? Oh, well, at the end of the uh, Jaime Hernandez uh, art book, uh, The Secrets of Life and Death, mm-hmm. he says, or maybe it was an interview somewhere else, I can't remember. Maybe it was an interview in PCJ. He said that he looks old comic books to get religion and not to draw like them. I love that. I love that kind of sense of spirituality in art because to me, art means you're trying to connect with people. And that's a very spiritual thing to me. Are there a couple, uh, and this too is a, is a tough question, I'll acknowledge, but are there a couple experiences with art that stand out to you as high and above the most transcendent experiences you've had? Well, the first thing that jumps to my mind is seeing Egon Chiela paintings at the Albertine and um, uh, I forget where else in Vienna and seeing those colors and shapes and personalities in those paintings, which I know jumps ahead to your other question about like uh, art outside of comics. Mm -hmm. What else? Lisa Burby's work. Um, I just love those characters so much, and I uh, can't wait to meet them again in the next Sacred Heart volume. And what is it about Liz Suburbia as a storyteller? She's so warm. She really treats her characters with respect, and I love the way she draws desire. She draws sex in this like incredible way that's just very messy and sweet, and uh, her line work is so energetic. Uh, and I just think that reflects all, all kind of reflects who she is as a person, which is just this really warm, sweet, caring person. And now question number eight, the doomsday question. What's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? Probably spending as much time as I did drawing that James Joyce comic because I have, I don't know, maybe slight OCD tendencies and they really ramped up during the making of the comic. I drew that comic about four or five times and I just kept pasting over things and I was just trying to make it this classic brush style comic and that really wasn't where my heart was and I just worked so long on it. Could have been doing other things on top of that. So that was the worst decision I ever made as a cartoonist. When you talk about the the sort of classicism of the approach, the brush treatment. Was this something uh, you felt initially that the the subject matter called for? I just felt it was something I had to do because it was all I knew at the time. 
um, really. I mean, I had experimented with different methods, but I think one of the problems was it was one of the first comics I did out of school. In school, of course, you have tight deadlines. Mm-hmm. I worked great on tight deadlines. I didn't know this. For the James <laughs> Joyce comic, I had this incredibly long deadline um, where I had months and months and months to work on this. If I had had, uh, you know, just a few weeks or a month or something for this, I, what was the comic, 20 pages? If I had had a month, two months, it would have been probably a much better comic because I would have panicked and figured out something more interesting and drew faster and not had to labor over it so much. So I think uh, that was a big part of where my trouble was coming from. Mm-hmm. And we're we're once again bumping against question nine here, but what was it that uh, drew you to James Joyce? Uh, I loved Dubliners, and uh, that was really about it. Um, I had had a friend who was really into James Joyce and talked about him all the time. I'm part Irish, so I felt like I kind of like knew that world a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's so funny and and weird and uncomfortable. Uh, and in particular, the story Araby that I picked was this story of like yeah. longing, like teenage longing and angst, and uh, that felt very close to me at the time in my early twenties. It's one of the great last lines of a of a short story. Uh-huh. Absolutely. All right, and now now let's let's enter question number nine uh, formally. What work from another medium has influenced you the most, other than the ones we've already talked about? A couple of films. Uh, Yi Yi by Edward Yang, which is a Taiwanese movie from 2000, and uh, Itumama Tambien by Alfonso Cron, and all that I've seen of Sayaja Ray's work, who was an Indian mm-hmm. Bengali filmmaker working in the 50s, 60s, 70s, who did the Apu trilogy, and Charulata, and The Big City, and all these wonderful films. Um, I'm actually working on, or I worked on a pitch called The Movies of My Heart that is all of an, like a comic format essay about movies. And you had a movie podcast for a time, right? Uh, was it Lights Go Down? Is oh, that... yes. Uh, yeah. You feel like you have unfinished business podcast. following uh, your, oh, your no, recordings it's, there? Uh, it's, it's not, uh, it's just done. I did about a season's worth. It was about 20 episodes, mm-hmm. and I feel pretty much done with the project. Couldn't figure out how to monetize it. So that kind of <laughs> cut into my enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I really enjoyed doing it, uh, and I recommend it to people if they like films. Okay, and I have, I have a, a secondary question for this one, only because I, I feel like I've seen you refer to their placements more often than most other cartoonists I follow on Twitter. Uh-huh. So, all right, best replacements album before we move on. Oh, my God. I'm just going to have to say one song, which is, um, it's not on an album proper, but uh, the, um, I forget the name of the song. Lights have performed me, da-da-da-da-da, smokes. What is that song? That's a version of Can't Hardly Wait, right? There's a, yeah, Jesus Rides Beside Me, Never Buys Any Smokes. With, with Bob, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, yeah you're talking yeah, about the version yeah, with the Bob Stinson. The Tim version with Bob Stinson, correct. Yeah. Yes. That is absolutely the best replacement. <laughs> yeah, no question. Cool. You will not get any argument from me. <laughs> and uh, question number 10. Aliens made contact with Earth, and they seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. 
you've been selected to introduce them to comics. What do you show them first? Um, I'm going to say two connecting books. I'm going to say the first volume of Love and Rockets, volume one by Jaime and volume one by Gilbert, uh, or maybe volume two by Jaime because that's when he starts to get into the Locas more and yeah. uh, gets into the L.A. stuff more. I, I think that stuff's a lot stronger than the more kind of like freewheeling, still very, very, very good uh, sci-fi stuff in the volume one. So I would say volume two of Jaime and volume one of Gilbert of um, Love and Rockets. I, I love the Jaime stuff and, and the Gilbert stuff also, but that, that is such a, a tricky thing, I think, in recommending, say, that series to people for the first time, you know, whether to start all the way at the beginning when you've got the kind of nice epistolary Maggie and Hopi stuff going on, but also in the midst of, you know, the kind of kitchen sink sci-fi or, or to uh-huh. begin at, at volume two where back in Los Angeles and the character stuff really blossoms in a, a kind of unprecedented way. Oh yeah. And that's where death of speedy is and fly on the ceiling and all these great stories. I'm pretty sure flies in the ceiling is in that volume. I feel like it's, it's amazing with that volume, just how much that covers in terms of the, you know, the storied love and rockets pieces mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. between Jaime and Gilbert. Is there a person who in the course of your your growth as a cartoonist and a storyteller you go back to more often? Uh, I don't think it's fair to pick one of the two. I love them both so much. I mean, it's like picking a member of the Beatles or something. <laughs> but uh, I would say Gilbert captured... Jaime captured me first, but Gilbert captured me stronger. And I think he's the more underappreciated of the two. Now, granted, he doesn't make he's not the cartoonist who makes it the easiest to mm. appreciate him given his uh, wild and um, ever-changing and polymorphic output, because it's just so hard to follow all those interconnecting stories. But yeah, I think his work, particularly because of um, the influence of classic classic international films being an influence on him, Mm -hmm. I think I connected to that as well, because he's a big fan of... Fellini and other directors, and that really influenced his work. And I loved looking to film in that way, especially like classic black and white film for a black and white comic. It felt so right. Well, I think we can end on that. That's a, a great answer. Thank you.